Kiora, Tena Koto Katoa. I'm Chris Gardner in New Zealand. This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. And in this episode of the Doctor Who podcast, James and Ian share with a very jealous Trevor their adventures at Gallifrey 2013. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor Who Podcast. It's my uh, not envious duty today to be uh, chairing a little bit of a panel of my own. I mean, I, I wasn't at Gallifrey 2013 with uh, James, Ian and Michelle, uh, but I get to do my own little panel here in the DWP camper van. I get to talk to James and Ian about their experiences at the convention. Hello, guys. Hello, Trevor. Hello, Ian. Hello. It's for me, I suppose, it's the only way I'm really going to get to experience the, you know, the vibe and the feel of this year's convention. One question I want to ask you guys, one, my, my first question off the bat was the amount of people there. Now, as, as listeners might know, they had to cap attendance at uh, 3,200 people this year. They, they said, right, once we've reached that magic number, no more attendances will be accepted, no day passes available. I'm, I'm just wondering what you guys felt about that and whether you think that cap worked or whether you think there should be less people or more people or the same amount of people? Well, we're going to be coming at this from very different angles because clearly this is this is my third Gallifrey. So I've seen the convention grow um, over the three occasions that I've been. Whereas, Ian, of course, this was your first Gallifrey and therefore your only comparator really are cons that you've attended in the UK. So um, I, I think I'll throw the question to you first of all. <laughs> yes, this was my um, first Gallifrey and in terms of size, the only thing I can really compare it to was the official convention in Cardiff last year, which had about half the number of people. Certainly there was huge numbers of people there and there was an amazing variety of people there. The, the, the number of costumes was amazing. For the most part, it didn't feel crowded and, and that you know, um, the, the absolute numbers don't really matter. It's whether you feel that you can get into events and whether you feel that you're being crowded shoulder to shoulder. There were one or two times for the real signature events in the main hall where it mm. did become quite packed. Um, when Stephen Moffat's video was being played, Red Stradling's video was being played, or for the Masquerade Ball on the Saturday night, then it was standing room only in the main hall. But other than those big individual events, actually I thought that things worked pretty well. For example, there was two or three opportunities to see Sylvester McCoy in the main hall, so people took their turns and they didn't just pack out the room the same with Freema. So I think overall that they they had it pretty much uh, as as much as you could control that number of people I think they had it planned out pretty much about right oh that's, that's interesting I think perhaps because I have experienced it in a slightly different way I, I would say that it was noticeable um there were you said 3,200 and you're quite right that's what they capped the membership at but when you consider all of the staff and all of the guests on top of that the the figure was closer to 3,500 in fact I think it was just over 3,500 and for me I would say yes the, the scale has changed and it has 
change the vibe a little bit. It, it's still got the same Gallifrey hallmarks, and I think, Trev, if you went along, you, you wouldn't feel as if you were attending a different convention to the one you attended in 2011, but it, it's just got more people. For instance, the lobby downstairs, do you remember how wide the corridors were in the lobby? We held our quiz there with the Ucast and so mm, on. Mm, you mm. wouldn't have noticed that they were wide corridors because they were constantly full of people traffic. <laughs> and wow. yeah, that, that was fine. You know, in all honesty, it was fine. You weren't pushing... You weren't pushing other people out the way, but you did you did have to plan where you were going to a little better because it took a lot longer to get from one end of the corridor to the other. Um, and certainly Ian mentioned standing room only for at least a couple of panels. Uh, in all honesty, you couldn't see the standing room only because there were people standing there. <laughs> you, <laughs> you couldn't get in the door, uh, certainly to the, the Saturday evening Sylvester McCoy panel, which was amazing and certainly one of the highlights of my career. I mean, put it this way, normally when you go to a gig and there's a famous rock star, people do crowd surfing. Rarely do you get the performer dive into the crowd and just wander around the audience answering questions randomly. Uh, but that's precisely what Sylvester McCoy did. And he was immense. He's still got it. <laughs> he really has still got it. But uh, but certainly, it's a very, very large event. I can't see it working if it got any larger. I don't think there are any plans to try and make it any larger. Uh, but I think despite this year being the 24th Gallifrey, it was still very much of an experimental uh, convention for Sean and his colleagues because they've never dealt with something this large before. Probably answered my next question slightly, James, and you probably have a little bit too, Ian. It's, it's a two-pronged question. When you got your uh, schedule, when, when they released a schedule for what was happening over the three days, A, what were you most looking forward to? And B, when you got there, what was the highlight of the weekend? Um, in, in terms of what I was looking forward to, to be honest, I didn't even look at the program in advance. Even when I got my official program on the day, I only kind of glanced at it, really. I was mostly there to see everybody else and be part of the atmosphere and was quite content, to be honest, to sort of uh, tag along with people and go to what panels that they were interested in. As the weekend went on and I got more of a feel for what was happening and how it was structured, there were a few things that I saw. I thought, oh, I'd quite like to go and see that one. And so I tagged into it. But I, there, was, there wasn't that many that I was massively invested in. Oh, I've got to do this. And I certainly wasn't doing the highlighter routine through my program. Uh, and pretty much took a bit of a sort of a, a, an ad hoc approach to it. Uh, as for highlights, um, as James has already said, Sylvester was just amazing. The way he did an open mic routine walking around the audience, and so not just walking up and down the aisles, but actually walking out into the blocks of seating and to the individual people and handing them the microphone and doing a one-to-one -one piece with them with the, the jokes and messing around with the kids. And it was as much a comedy stand-up routine as it was an interview piece. And that was just magical. I mean, it really was a, a one-off thing that you would never see the, the, exactly the same thing again and was really, really in, in, enjoyable. Um, Freema was very good. Um, the fact that she's obviously so new to this kind of stuff made it very fresh rather than some, some of the guests you see at these conventions. It's a bit of a sausage machine as they churn out the same old anecdotes. But Freema was clearly new, still thinking about her answers. And that was very nice to see, and that was very enjoyable. And anything with Nick Briggs. Nick Briggs was just brilliant mm. in every single panel he was in, and I, 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 frankly, I could watch him read the phone book out and probably enjoy it. I think he probably would do too. He likes lists and numbers. 
Awesome. But, uh, but, but for me, yeah, certainly looking through the program, there's always things that you do. You get your highlighter out and you think, yes, I want to go see Freema Edgman. Yes, I want to go see Sylvester McCoy. Yes, I want to go and see Stephen Thorne. Omega was there this year. Um, but in all honesty, the reality is somewhat different. And the things I enjoyed the most was, one, meeting Michelle for the, for the second time, but for the first time uh, since she was part of the Doctor Who podcast. It was great to, to be able to sit there and spend the weekend with her. That was that, that was great fun. And, and also because, because the podcast has been going for a couple of years now, we, we knew some of the guests. And spending time with Andrew Smith, for instance, he, he came with us to breakfast. Uh, I think it was the Saturday. I can't remember. Space and time and dates doesn't really have much of a meaning for me when I'm in uh, Los Angeles. But uh, but we just spent a couple of hours together uh, talking about all manner of things, not just Doctor Who or Adric, strangely, uh, but uh, but things that people talk about and that's the real strength of Gallifrey it brings people together and yes you've got that common denominator of Doctor Who but there's so much more besides because you get to meet so many fascinating individuals so the highlight for me was was meeting a whole bunch of new people I will regale you with one <laughs> one anecdote that uh, relates to meeting people. I was having a chat on our final day. Ian was there as well, and we were talking to Stephen from Radio Free Scaro in the in the lobby, and we were talking about Stephen's abject failure to ever listen to a Big Finish play all the way through. And I'd lent him one a few months ago, uh, The Juggernauts, it was called. Uh, it's a Colin Baker play, and I know Ian's mm. listened to that as well. And it, it's a brilliant play, incidentally. Fantastic performance from uh, Terry Malloy and uh, Bonnie Langford. Really, really good. And I said to Stephen, well, did you finish it? He said, nah. And who sat down next to Stephen? Scott Allen Woodward, the writer of The Juggernauts. <laughs> now, we didn't even know Scott was going to be there. But, I mean, you, you think of how many plays there are in Big Finish's main range. It's nearly 170 now. We talk about one. And coincidentally, the author sits down and starts talking to us about it. Uh, I was absolutely blown away. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was uh, really quite amazing. And then I had quite a long chat with him about I Davros, which uh, Michelle and I reviewed just a couple of months back. So that was really quite weird because he had been sat there for a while. He was working on writing something on his uh, computer. And he just, I think, clocked that we were talking about Big Finish and in particular his play. And he just jumped into the conversation at one point. <laughs> I, I, I think James was talking about how in, in the early days of Big Finish, he would go up and get his CD signed. And this guy just suddenly says did I sign one of your CDs? And we looked up and realised who it was. It was, yeah, that kind of stuff does seem to go on at Galley and was, was really quite amazing. It's, like, it's a completely different planet, if you'd excuse the uh, the pun. But, uh, of course, Stephen just kind of sat there because he realised that the author had just realised he started his play but hadn't finished it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stephen, you've got some homework to do now, mm. Absolutely. Michelle here. I had a horrible nightmare last night that I got up at two in the morning, set up all my recording equipment, and then couldn't make the connection with James and Ian. Hmm, actually that seems to have really happened. So apparently I'm now a victim of Leeson's time eddy. That being the case, I thought I'd send in a few of my thoughts on Gallifrey 24, the 24 hours of Gallifrey 1, here uh, in this format. Now if I were to subtitle the Gallifrey convention this year... It would be, for me, Gallifrey 1 Full Circle. Yes, Andrew, I'm going to nick that for the framing device of this piece. This was a really special Gallifrey for me. It marked the first time that my 
chief memories and and fondest memories of the weekend have to do with the people I interacted with rather than the actual convention content itself. Now, I did go to lots and lots of panels, uh, enjoyed the things that the convention has to offer, but the memories that I take home from me this year are really focused particularly around the people that I met, Uh, starting at the head of the list, of course, with James and Ian. You know, two years ago, I went to my first Gallifrey convention because I wanted to meet James and Trev, who went that year, and uh, succeeded in only saying a couple of sentences to them. Here it is two years later, and uh, I had the chance to really spend the entire weekend hanging out with a couple of the most wonderful guys you'd you'd ever care to meet. Uh, And yes, listeners, the Doctor Who podcast fellows are as nice in person as they are on the podcast Uh, You know, actually, Trev is probably nicer in person, I would guess, than on the podcast. But I'll have to get back to you on that someday. But at any rate, James and Ian, it was was a wonderful time to spend with them. I don't know if you managed to see, but we tweeted a picture of the three of us at the TARDIS there. And you remember that sequence with Amy at the end of Vampires in Venice where she says, Got my guys, got my spaceship. Well, it was kind of that moment for me. Got my guys, got my podcast. Don't, don't tell him I said that. But uh, wonderful, wonderful time with them. In addition to getting to meet and spend time with James and Ian, I also got to meet uh, a fellow named John who does the technical work for the Doctor Who podcast. If you go onto our forum and see the website, you're, you're looking at John's work. John came to us all the way from Australia, and, and that was a delight, too, to get to meet him in person. But beyond that, and one of the reasons I think it's full circle for me, is the chance that I had to get to meet and spend time with so many Doctor Who podcast listeners. If you have listened to my thoughts on my experience at Galley 22, which was in Doctor Who podcast episode 124, you'll know that I got into this podcasting lark because I wanted to be a part of the conversation. I wanted to be a part of the dialogue. I've heard other folks sometimes talk about podcasting as, well, we love to share our ideas, we love to make our opinions known. That actually wasn't my motivation. It it was more the connecting with people, and that is what came to the forefront for me at Gallifrey One this year. There were so many wonderful listeners who came up to us and greeted us and talked with us. And if you'll bear with me, I want to give a shout-out to to some of those to give you a flavor of the incredible people uh, that we have kind of in our podcast family, if you will. First greetings again should go go to Brian. Brian is one of a couple of guys that last year when I was at Gallifrey without the Doctor Who podcast fellas uh, kind of took me under their wings and, and spent time with me and kept me company and helped me uh, come out of my introvert shell a little bit. So it was wonderful to spend time with Brian again. I think the guys mentioned Drew uh, or Henry Gordon Jago on the forum. Wonderful man, uh, a man of uh, few words but deep written thoughts on the forum. Great to get to know him and to spend time with him. Uh, you ought to come to the forum so you can interact with folks like Henry Gordon J.O. Uh, Brian brought his friend Brendan, a chef and a podcaster in his own right. Great to meet him. On the first morning, I met Matthew. Matthew reminds me of a Thoreau, uh, and I mean that in the most complimentary way. He, he, he was really cool. Uh, another fellow, very amicable, was uh, Shag, and that Shag is in Shaggy like in Scooby-Doo, not what all you Brits were thinking. He's a guy that, that plans conventions for accountants, of all things, and yet he was energetic and outgoing and, and fun to be with. 
Jeff has uh, corresponded on the forum and on Facebook, and he was good to meet in person. Aneta from Chicago, who's the harpist with the well-tempered schism, was great to see her again. Then there was Gordon, who came all the way from England, and if I understood correctly, it was the first time he'd flown. Molly had dinner with us at uh, one of the local fast food restaurants. Scott. Scott is somebody who has an amazingly important job teaching early teenage year students, and he told me about how he works in some of the Doctor Who things, some of the historicals, for instance, in in some of the content that he teaches. Elaine and Terry from Adelaide, Australia, and Stefan. Now, Stefan came all the way from Germany because of what he heard on the Doctor Who podcast. And and now, once I had heard that early on in the weekend, it's worried me ever since uh, about whether Stefan felt like he'd got his money worth. That's a big and investment based on what, what you hear someone say on a podcast. So, Stefan, it's feedback at the com. We'd like to hear whether it was actually worth your time and, and, and how you enjoyed the Gallifrey Convention. Stefan brought with him these amazing ribbons uh, that had a Dalek on them and said exterminieren. That's just a sampling. I've probably missed some names there, people that came up and talked to us. But I want you to know that it's listeners like you that really made the convention wonderful for us. Another one of my highlights will be getting the chance to, to meet and get to know some of the other podcasters. And I'd like to give special mention to Sean and Eric from the Doctor Who Book Club podcast, as well as a little bit of a plug. Uh, they were gracious enough to invite me to be the guest reviewer with them on this month's book, the February book. So we recorded the three of us live there at Gallifrey. And uh, it was amazing. I, it, it occurs to me I haven't had the chance to podcast face-to-face in that, that way and to, to be there in the same room uh, sharing our, our excitement and enjoyment uh, over one of the Doctor Who novels. White Darkness, by the way, if you're reading along with the podcast and watch for them to release that episode uh, shortly here. That was absolutely one of the peak experiences of my Gallifrey convention even though it had nothing to do with the official programming of the Gallifrey convention. And I, I think that kind of brings me back to my impressions of this year and just how special and meaningful it was to me to make those connections with people beyond the programming of the convention. So uh, coming back to this idea of full circle, I I sort of got into podcasting in a sense because I wanted to join the dialogue that, that Trev and Tom and James were having. But now that I find myself on this side of the mic, I find that I'm craving more and more the dialogue with the listeners. And I love this idea that you can correspond with us through the feedback. You can correspond with us through our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter uh, and continue the conversation. And always, 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 uh, if we're at a, a convention, by all means, come up and say hello and engage in conversation. That is where I feel like I've really come full circle now. I do feel very strongly about the tagline for the Doctor Who podcast, and you are all, and always will be, most welcome. But on the whole, Gallifrey was it was fantastic for for all of the reasons, Trevor, that you would cite when you, when you were just you know if you were to talk about Gallifrey 2011 now, and uh, I mean there are a couple of changes, and I'm gonna. I'm going to dwell on these just very, very briefly. Now, one of the things that makes Gallifrey so fantastic are the panels. I don't think you get panel discussions where people sit around and debate Doctor Who for 45 minutes anywhere else in the world. Certainly not in the UK, in my experience. No, that that actually really surprised me because I listened to you guys, um, actually, well, you, James, talk to, uh, you know, our um, good friend Chris from the Udcast and uh, Chip as well from the Two Minute Time Lord. Yeah. And, and Chris seemed quite surprised that... 
everyone wasn't aware that these ideas of doing panels were very, I suppose, an American-centric type of thing. It's yeah. it's not really something that's done in the U of K. No, that's absolutely right. And and, and Chip said they were a, pretty much a staple in America. This is what people do at, uh, at, at sci-fi conventions, even really small ones in America. And it just doesn't happen for whatever reason. It just doesn't happen in the UK. I wonder why that is. I really wonder why that is. I've, I've been giving this a lot of thought, actually, coincidentally. And I'm wondering whether it's a hangover from the old days of Doctor Who, where Americans were starved for Doctor Who. I mean, you know, you, they, they didn't get much on TV. You know, they didn't have co-partnerships like they do these days with the Matt Smith uh, stories. And all they could really do was sit around at conventions and club meetings and talk about it and maybe watch a grainy VHS copy they got from some guy in the U of K. Mm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether that's just a continuation of the fact that, you know, for many, many years, American fans could really only discuss and talk and extrapolate on the, you know, the uh, Doctor Who universe. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it crossed my mind as well, but I, I have a feeling it probably isn't the reason why. I mean, there are lots of conventions, sci-fi related conventions. You look at Comic Con, you look at uh, San Diego Comic Con. Uh, no, that is the same thing, isn't it? <laughs> There's various <laughs> different Comic Cons and um, sci-fi conventions that celebrate different sci-fi shows, many of which are American, and they still have panel discussions and they still debate certain aspects of characters the fact that it's doctor who i don't think really has much of an impact perhaps doctor who fans in america realize that you know it's not really that well known and therefore to get really into it you need to have probably a slightly deeper level of knowledge about the show and therefore once you've invested that time to get to know who knitted tom baker's scarf back in the 70s you want to be able to discuss that level of detail with your fellow mm. fans and i think if you then all come together at uh, one big convention like gallifrey it's easier to do that but certainly the, the reason why i mentioned this was because there was um, again when i went in 2010 and 2011 and i'm sure trevor you'll bear this out there was a very clear boundary on those panels between the ones you go to to discuss Doctor Who and the ones you go to that you know you're going to get sold something at like a writer's panel the authors have panels sometimes and you go along they tell you about what's coming out even Big Finish to an extent has a marketing um, theme running through some of their panels now I, I went to a couple of panels I was on one panel that I thought was going to be Doctor Who related, uh, you know, in terms of debate. And I was on a panel with a couple of other people who were clearly there for other reasons, and they were there to <laughs> publicise stuff. And we, we, we came to a bit of a, you know, it, it was a little bit fractious. It might have been interesting to watch, I'm not sure. But personally speaking, I found it quite painful being on the panel, hearing people trying to sell what I knew, you know, what were stories that I didn't like very much. And Gallifrey has always been really adult and very mature about separating the two elements and I, I, I think this time round the boundary between publicity and debate became blurred on a couple of occasions and I think that's purely because you're mixing people who are involved in Big Finish involved in writing books with fans who have objective views who frankly you know some stories aren't going to be that good you know, we all accept that when we talk about classic Doctor Who. Why can't we be mature and adult about that when we're at a convention rather than have to say, yeah, buy everything. It's all brilliant. You know, and, and that that did 
grate a little bit. But I would say that was the only bad experience for me this year. I think with the size of the convention has got to over 3,000 people, it's almost inevitable that some people are going to take the opportunity to try and push their wares because where else are they going to get the opportunity to push it to so many people in one place? I was actually uh, in the audience at the, the panel that uh, James is talking about. In fact, it was my very first panel. So it was uh, something of a baptism by fire. I actually wasn't so much bothered by the promotional tone, uh, even in that particular panel. What actually I had a hard time with in that panel is it was quite stilted, didn't flow, because they weren't actually trying to address the topic. There was a topic given for the panel, and instead they went off in random directions which suited the message they wanted to give out. Mm. And they all had different messages, and there was no real cohesion. And it wasn't a panel, it was just a bunch of people taking in turns to say more or less random stuff. And it was actually quite tough as an audience member to to engage with the thing because there, yeah. there was nothing much to engage with. And in fact, I ended up throwing a couple of questions back at the panel to try and pull it back on topic because it was actually an interesting topic that you could have talked around, but that would in an inward discussion. What they wanted to do was talk about their particular threads. So I didn't mind the promotional aspect, except that it ended up making the conversation poorer, and that I that bothered me. Yeah, and I, I, I've got no problem with panels promoting stuff i really don't and i have no issue with people selling things at sci-fi conventions i understand this is the the way the convention conventions work these days uh gallifrey's always been able to separate the two so you can have panels and rooms and discussions solely dedicated to assessing how many times william hartnell said hmm. right now that <laughs> it doesn't have any bearing at all on sales unless you're going to write a book about <laughs> William Hartnell saying hmm and then if you you know the, the other panels talking about books and stuff you know are, are able to be pushed and I don't my, mind having the promotional element there what I do object to is having them combined uh, because like you say it you've got people there with very different objectives very different aims and I think the people who suffer are the ones who watch it <laughs> and it, it just it just didn't um it just didn't gel for me as much this time and because i had such a you know a stark experience of that being on the panel um i, I could feel halfway through that the, the panel just basically dying and uh my, my heart was was sinking because i wasn't able to discuss what i thought were good big finish plays and what were bad big finish plays i i had to pretty much counter uh the other guys on the panel saying well, you know, everything is good. They're fantastic. You can't go wrong with it. They, you know, they love the. It's just, oh, come on, you know, you, you, this, this is, this is not good. And it comes down to the individuals as well. I mean, you, you had Nick Briggs taking every possible opportunity to tell any mic in range subscribers get more at BigFinish.com, and you know, he, he, he never stops promoting what he does. But he also entertains everybody and n- never let it overshadow whatever he was supposed to be doing on the stage at the time. So, you know, he, he was there for the Sylvester McCoy piece. And, yeah, he got, got a few plugs for a big finish in there, but in no way detracted from the what he was doing as a compare with Sylvester's piece. Not that he could have kept Sylvester in check anyway. So <laughs> it, <No. laughs> it depends how they go about it. I think Nick and the rest of the big finish uh, team themselves, actually, judge it just about right. That they Yes, of course, they're there to sell you their products, but they don't ram it down your throat and they don't stop it being enjoyable and they don't overshadow everything else whereas certain other individuals who are less directly connected with it uh, weren't quite as they didn't have the same finesse with it yeah well i mean i i think one of the strengths of gallifrey 
too, is that you will never be able to see everything that goes on at a convention. There are three or four strands of convention activities, panels, quizzes, interviews, all running at the same time. So for, for anyone that's concerned about, you know, going to a panel that might be deemed as an infomercial or going to a panel that might be more of a discussion, there, there are plenty of strands there in the convention booklet where you can say, okay, I'm, I'm looking for a particular style. And if you know you don't want to be talked to, you'd rather discuss stuff with people then you know you go for a certain type of panel uh and you know then then you can avoid being sold stuff or on the other side of the coin you can avoid boring conversations or something like that yeah you have to be really discerning in what you go to now and i think the way the program was published this year was uh somewhat confusing because every single panel had uh, or it was it was a parody of a doctor who story title so for instance the quiz that we'll talk about in a minute with the memory cheats was called the mind of evil trivia bowl now you can figure out that's got something to do with doctor who trivia but there are some others that were extremely cryptic and the only way you could find out whether it was going to be a promotional panel a writer's panel or i don't know a panel discussing lost episodes was to flick forwards a couple of pages in the program and read the commentary there now that's different certainly from 2010 and 11 where the titles were a little bit more informative and less cryptic um, mm. but it's just ironic that the year that you really have to be very careful about where you go to it made it a little bit harder to compare and contrast what was available at any one time, particularly given there were five programming tracks this year, essentially. That might be a symptom, I, I think, too, of the, the way the convention built up this year. Uh, certainly, the registration for this year's convention opened at the end of last year's convention. So there were lots of fans there who were, you know, New Doctor, who had been part of the convention circuit, signed up immediately. So there might be a little bit of that malaise here with the titles this year that they're preaching to the converted. They're, they're, they're preaching to these hardcore Doctor Who fans who do know these titles. And and I think that's something that Sean and his team have recognised. They actually said there will be no pre-registrations at the convention this year. You'll have to wait, I think it's till April or May, to actually sign up online. So I think that opens the gate a little bit more to people that mightn't have attended this year or people that haven't even been to a convention at all. You know, just just the more general, you know, dare I say it, less knowledgeable fans. Yeah, I think we're all in with the same chance. It's, it's the 8th of March this year that the registration opens. So it's, uh, it's, you know, really quite soon. But just because you got into Gallifrey this year doesn't automatically mean you're going to get in next year. And it's much fairer that way. It's a very sensible idea that having just one membership fee next year as well, rather than a sliding scale. And, uh, you know, it's always good value, Gallifrey, no matter how much they charge, frankly. Even if you turned up on a day when you were able to turn up on a day and buy your membership, you weren't ever ripped off in any way shape or form it was always very reasonable in fact you'd always spend uh, if you're a uk attendee about 500 percent more in getting there <laughs> than you would mm -hmm. uh, actually buying buying your membership i think the the start of the program with the the oblique titles was particularly tough if like me you were kind of winging it and following your nose if you're the kind of person who sat down a week in advance and poured over the whole program and went through the highlighter pen 
it didn't matter because you had the time to sit there at your leisure and read the descriptions, work out exactly what you wanted to do and chart it. But if you're basically wandering around saying, what do I fancy doing next? It was really tough to figure out what everything was. And I found myself just looking at the attendees' names and looking for names that I recognised or was interested in. And I probably missed a couple of gems of panels that way by just going with what I knew. But it, it's a minor thing, to be honest with you. I still had a great time, but uh, it certainly could have been a bit more accessible. I think it's a balance. It depends how you plan your movements at a convention. I always try to plan my movements and I never stick to the plan ever. And that's normally because something distracts me. And one such distraction this year, certainly, which was a fantastic distraction, was meeting so many Doctor Who podcast listeners. And it was it was a real pleasure this year. People were coming up to us all the time. Uh, I know people spoke to you, Ian, and uh, I know Michelle had lots of conversations uh, with people who said, "Oh, I, you know, I love your show." Where's Trevor? Um- <laughs> yeah, did, I was I was about to ask, did any of them mention me and uh, you know sort of say how wonderful I was? And- there were remarkably few sentences where the word Trevor um, was accompanied with a swear word, so it was wonderful. You know, people really wanted to see you, Trevor. <laughs> wow, that's certainly an approval for 2011. Definitely, I'm sure I was swore at the minute I walked into the lobby. Back in uh, February 2011. Yes, well, that was by me because you nicked my beer. Do you remember <laughs> there, was a, there was a chap called Jeff who uh, presents the Goodies podcast? Indeed. Yeah. Now he he went to buy me a beer. He tells me two years ago, and you were there as well. And he went out and he bought two beers. Now he came back. Now I had gone somewhere, and I'm not quite sure where I'd gone. Maybe I'd probably gone to bed to sleep off jet lag or something, and therefore <laughs> he had a spare beer. I have now found out what happened to that beer. He informed me that you made it disappear. I was wondering why I ended up with two. You see, you might you might counter jet lag by going to sleep. I counter jet lag by drinking beer. Yeah, so Jeff actually bought me that beer this year. And Ian drank it. Yep. It was very nice. <laughs> I think this is definitely a DWP tradition that we need to start rolling through the conventions, that people buy James beer and then the rest of us drink them. Yeah, so Jeff, when I see you again, you I still need another beer, mate. <laughs> I really do. But Jeff was just one of the people who um, who came up and said hi again. Uh, we spent most of the weekend with a, a chap called uh, Henry Gordon Jago, or that's what he calls himself on the um, on on the forums anyway. Uh, real name is Drew. Uh, again, wonderful to spend time in your company, Drew. Um, and I hope we didn't bore you too much. But we had we had several meals with uh, with Drew and uh, it, it was fascinating to talk to his his knowledge and uh, the amount of detail he has about Doctor Who put me and Ian to shame uh, <laughs> on a fairly regular basis This week we complete our review of Season 1 of Countermeasures from Big Finish, looking at the third and fourth stories, The Pelage Project by Ian Potter and State of Emergency by Justin Richards. So starting with The Pelage Project, industrial pollution is detected in the sea that seems almost non-human and the team is sent to try and investigate what's going on at an industrial town that's been created by the entrepreneur Ken Temple. Deep within there, there are mysteries for them to discover. Well, one of the fun things about this story is that Ken Temple is played by Stephen Greif, who uh, is of Blake Seven fame, so it was kind of nice to hear him again. I mentioned when we reviewed the first two stories, 
I was able to suspend my disbelief pretty well for those. Have to admit, with the Pelage project, I had a little bit more difficulty with doing that, primarily because, as you mentioned, this is an industrial town that is ha- has been founded around this secret project, and the town seems to be so large. I mean, that they travel to quite a few places within the town, and you hear a lot of people within the town, and the social conditioning that they discover at the town just seems unlikely to me that such a place would be allowed to exist under the auspices of the British government. It was interesting. I mean, I was reminded quite strongly of the new towns which were created in England around that time, of which there were quite a few, Milton Keynes being the most famous, where they did just go and stamp down a reasonably large town in the middle of um, what was otherwise the countryside. So this sort of thing, without the mind control, obviously, was going on in that era. It's just pushing out the concept a little bit to put it into the bizarre territory. Very much like you would see in things like The Twilight Zone, as you were saying last week, where you take a relatively familiar concept and then just twist it a little bit. So I I didn't have a huge problem with that. Um, What I really loved about this story was the character of Kem Temple, because it's a common trope to have the mad scientist who wants to change the world and has their own agenda, or to have the strong leader or the strong charismatic leader. And what they did here was they took what was basically an East End character and used that. And when you listen to the extras, they say the inspiration was Alan Sugar, who is very much a inspirational entrepreneurial leader, very smart, knows what he's doing, but still has that sort of slightly rough East End edge. Right then, I suppose if you're concerned by chemical issues, your prime area of interest is going to be the petrochemical division. Actually, what about this Project Morning Star? You sure? I felt certain you'd be straight for the oil tank. It's not a problem, is it? Well, not at all. Bit off the main run, but if you've time, it's well worth a look. Would you like me to get the car, sir? Splendid, if that's all right. Absolutely fine. Mr Temple, why is everyone staring at us? Well, we're not terribly used to visitors in Pillage. And it made it quite a believable character, but one that's not very familiar. It's not one that I've encountered before, and I thought that was actually quite a fascinating and interesting line to take it down, and I really enjoyed his character and how they interacted with him. I actually struggled a little bit with the character, and this may be one of the first times that I have found uh, not being familiar with all of the accents in Britain to be a a downside. Usually I don't struggle with that, but I couldn't place where he was from. I didn't understand where he was from, and I wasn't certain. I don't know, somehow that, that was a disadvantage for me. Towards the end, you know, there's a time when our heroes are saying, take us to your control room, and he just takes them to the control room. And I felt like he was a little too easy to give in to things at the end. It just seemed a little bit strange to me. I've heard others say that this is their favorite of the of the four in the in the series, but for me it was one of the ones I struggled with a little bit more. I thought he was cocky and confident rather than mistaken. I mean throughout it he had this sort of confidence about him. Which again you look at the likes of Alan Sugar who they modeled it on and he always comes over as confident and his own man and doing what he wants to do. And that's the feel I got out of this, was that he he just felt that ultimately it didn't really matter what they did, he was going to win out anyway. But yeah, I, I thought, thought this was one of the stronger stories in the series, and I, and I definitely enjoyed it. And therein lies another one of my challenges, because I'm not real familiar with Alan Sugar, which kind of leads into my opinions on the final story in this set of four, which is State of Emergency by Justin Richards. Again, a story that was really steeped in British history, and in this case, British politics, it would have been helpful for me to have more of a knowledge of British politics and previous prime ministers and uh, 
because I didn't have that, I really struggled to completely follow state of emergency. What was fascinating was they bring in the character of Harold Wilson, uh, a British prime minister of the era, uh, who was quite realistically portrayed by, by the voice actor uh, Duncan Wisby. You can't barge into the prime minister's office. It's all right, Miss Williams. You can leave us. If you're sure, Prime Minister. I thought you people would give me the benefit of the doubt for a while. Sir, I don't know if you've been brief, but I'm here for your protection. You really believe that, whatever your name is? Group Captain Gilmore, sir. My men have secured the building. They won't allow anyone or anything to get to you. No one, in or out, without my express orders. You understand? I think you're too late, Group Captain. They've got to me already. I don't think a knowledge of the era is required there. I mean, Harold Wilson is before I was born, and I have no particular knowledge of his administration or, or what he did, although afterwards I did go and look him up. But I thought it was a brave choice to actually go and take a real character from relatively recent uh, political history and work with that, because very often um, these sorts of shows will dodge it and create some fake uh, prime minister or something like that. So it was an interesting choice to make, and I thought it worked, and that the whole way the story went with the coup that was taking place and the different factions, and again, harking back to the war and some of the um, uh, legacy of, of the Second World War, I thought it was quite actually a believable and interesting uh, story to put together. And I don't think you need to know who Harold Wilson necessarily was. Yeah, there was some discussion of which party's in and who's out and, and, and kind of the political machinations behind the scenes. My, you know, my own fault for not being more savvy about politics uh, on the other side of the world before I was born, I suppose. But, uh, it, you know, it was all right. But I certainly preferred the first two stories that we looked at last time compared to these last two stories. But overall, you know, it, it's a good series and uh, interesting that they can take what I consider to be fairly obscure characters that I didn't even remember and put them together and have a real viable uh, series. They talk about I, there's been a second series green-lighted for this, and I have a feeling the second series will, will go from strength to strength. I know in some of the extras they talked about having learned some lessons, both good and bad, from this first series, and, and I just bet that uh, Countermeasures 2 will be even better. Yes, I think they did a good solid start here. It was very enjoyable. It was very well put together. The team are a really interesting, good team that play off of each other very well. Uh, they put a good premise together for why the team exists and what they're doing. And if I had a slight um, complaint with this, it's just that it didn't really run with the concept too much. They had a few interesting ideas which they explored, but it stayed into relatively close territory to where they started out from. And I'll be interested to see them go off and do, you know, some really quite different stories um, in series two, which from the sound of it is what they're going to do. So so definitely a series to, to seek out. It's another winner from Big Finish and very much looking forward to what they're going to do with it moving forwards. We need to say thank you to Chip because he was he was so proactive in all of the recording and the organisational stuff for our two live quizzes. Uh, once against the memory treats, I can't remember what the result was there, and also <laughs> against the Ucast on the Sunday. And for some reason, the result 
<laughs> that slips my mind once again. But one thing that was consistent was was both the you know the effort and the love and efficiency and dedication of uh, of Chip and also Andrew Smith. Who you know without those two individuals, those two panels would have been extremely difficult to organise, and they wouldn't have been anywhere near as much fun to participate in or I expect to watch, despite mm. the dodgy result. Especially with Trev's questions. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you say that now. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can listen to the results of those two quizzes, thanks to Chip and uh, his uh, various recording friends up on our feed now. Uh, the, the last two quizzes that are there uh, will regale you with the efforts of James, Ian, Michelle and co at the uh, two quizzes they took part in at Galley and uh, a, a fine effort by all involved. <laughs> yeah, emphasis on <laughs> next, next time we run a, a quiz, Trev, you're in for some fun. It'll be lots of fun. <laughs> An inverted I'll comment. be happy to win it. I'll be happy to answer all the questions and win it again, Ian. Don't you worry about that. Yes. In, in what year did Hartnell, um, let me think, drop out of school? That's a good kind of question. To ask, yeah. I, I think that might be too easy, actually. I'm thinking, to, to the nearest millimetre, how long was William Hartnell's hair in the third episode of The Daleks? <laughs> what was Patrick Troughton's inside leg measurement? To the exact inch. I'm writing all these down, by the way. <laughs> Ian, I must just ask you before we wrap up this episode, um, one of the things that is, is, is the real centrepiece of the convention, really, was the uh, the Mask of Mandragora on the Saturday evening. Where Let, oh, no, 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 no. Let's let's just rewind there, James. Sorry, sorry. I have listened to you for oh, so, for so many, listened to you for so many podcasts. Mangle that word. Can you please see? Can you please say Mandragora just once for me? Okay, Mandragora. Thank you. That goes some way to. Um, Making me feel just a little bit better. Carry what, on. What's the first story in the key to time season? The Rybos operation. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Ian, before I was so rudely interrupted there, um, <laughs> cosplay. <laughs> how did you re- react as a as a British Doctor Who fan to cosplay and the way that it's used to celebrate Doctor Who at Gallifrey? Incidentally, I have always said Mandragora as well, so I'm with James on this one. Um, it was amazing uh, the 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 sheer variety of costumes that people had. Uh, I didn't spend a huge time in the the ball because I got there quite late and was literally stood in the the corridor outside, peering in through the door, which was a somewhat suboptimal place to see this thing. Um, but the, the the quality of I saw a skit where they had the Zygon and all the different uh, and someone just Tom Baker and all the different companions of Tom Baker were coming in and out as supposed Zygons. Uh, and he kept zapping them with this onyx screwdriver, and it was great. It was a great little comedy skit. But the, the the Zygon costume was just phenomenal, and uh, yeah, the whole time going around the whole convention, people have put so much effort into it. It was it was wonderful. I mean, it's not something I think I personally would uh, do myself. Um, and the, the amount of time it must take is mind-boggling. Um, but then I suppose it's probably not that much more time than we put into things like podcasting. So, yeah. you know, mm, uh, pops and kettles come to mind. But uh, hmm. the, the, the quality of what they came out with was just absolutely out of this world. And, and the imagination that some of the costumes had was, was really quite fantastic. Well, I suppose that's bringing us slightly towards the end of, uh, well... 
I can't say my, James and Ian's uh, reminiscences about Gallifrey 2013. It's a fantastic convention. It's always a lot of fun. It's a very people-friendly convention, very family-friendly convention. They always have different strands running for, I suppose, different age groups and different levels of fans. There's always something there for any age and any level of fan to enjoy. And uh, I want to say a big hello, welcome. You are most welcome to all the new fans that I'm sure we must have as a result of being along to the uh, Gallifrey Convention because we had a, a, a full-page ad in the convention book that I'm sure must have uh, interested some of you guys and gals out there. So if, if you're a first-time or second-time or third-time listener to the podcast, welcome on board. It's great to have you here. We uh, bring out a weekly podcast full of fun, frivolity, and uh, all sorts of exciting things. So uh, welcome on board and uh yeah, I, ho- I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully in future years, we can we can meet up at Gallifrey, new listeners. We can actually say hello. We can meet in person as as we did. There was there was one particular guy. I must just say this. Scott, hello. Um, he said hello to us every single time I've been to Gallifrey, all the way back to 2010. And uh, once again, he, he came up and said hello. You know, I followed you over from the Who cast. It was, uh, he, he was really pleased to be able to just come up and chat to us. And, and it's an honour for us to speak to someone who's listened to us for over three years. Um, mm. So, Scott, great. And, and I will tell just one quick story. Scott also spoke to the Udcast guys. Now, he's, he's a big fan of the Udcast, as is his son. Scott told the Udcast this. And the Udcast recorded on the spot, an episode of the U-Cast specifically for Scott's son. So the U-Cast has got a listener base of that particular podcast of one. (laughs) But how fantastic was that? How fantastic was that? Fantastic, but a very labour-intensive way of getting loyal listeners. <laughs> it is, but this is what Gadafrey does, you see. It brings people yeah. together, and uh, it's you know it, it wouldn't happen anywhere else, and it, it, it's just absolutely incredible. Thanks also to John Mizzy. It was wonderful to meet you. This is the guy behind the DWP website, and anything technical or complicated that I simply don't understand, John normally takes care of, uh, <laughs> along with Trevor's help. But it was great to meet you, and uh, you know, good to see you in your DWP polo shirt. And and, and again, you're a real person, and <laughs> it's always strange mm. to see listeners and colleagues in the flesh when you when you work um, on a podcast. So yes, I, I think that's probably enough waxing lyrical, really, isn't it? I think. Um, I think so. We, we've uh, probably reached our uh, smolch threshold level. I think. <laughs> So yes, until next year then, uh, when we may well have a uh, another contingent visiting Los Angeles for Gallifrey 25. It'll be the 25th Gallifrey 1 convention. Amazing stuff. I think we ought to wrap up. So, Trevor, I'm glad you're still jealous. Ian, it was a pleasure to spend time in your company <laughs> last weekend. And, and listeners, we'll speak to you very soon. Bye for now. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. That was the Doctor Who podcast which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. So if if you're a first-time or second-time or third-time listener to the podcast, welcome on board. Uh, it, it's great to have you here, and uh, please keep listening. We love. Oh, what am I? Ah, listening. <laughs>
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> please keep listening. We keep listening. Don't tell me. If it drops below 8,000, I have to sell one of my children. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs>